It is tempting to think that more leadership or some kind of improved leadership will help us and our organizations work better. But what if leadership was part of the problem instead of the solution? What if our understanding of it only maintained principles of the past, which no longer serve us well? That's what I explore in my book, Dare to Unlead, and today in this podcast. Join me and my guest, a person quoted in the book or in tune with its values, to learn from them what it takes to unlead and succeed together. Welcome to this first episode of the Dare to Unlead podcast. Over the course of 11 episodes with a guest, we're going to explore chapter by chapter the major themes discussed in the book. But today is going to be a little bit special. We're not going to dwell on chapter one. What got us here won't get us there. Chapter one identifies the uh, fundamental changes facing business and society, which explain why the recipes of the past no longer work on today's employees and citizens. But with my guest today, I want to talk more broadly about the general philosophy of the book and of the approach it describes, because this approach owes a lot to him. Myron Rogers is the man who wrote the foreword of Dare to Unlead. He's also a pioneer in the application of living system theory to the profound challenges of today's organizations. He runs in the UK, where he now lives, a consulting practice in large-scale strategic social change. He is a co-author with Meg Whitley of the best-selling A Simpler Way. I'm very lucky to have a signed copy of A Simpler Way, which is a marvel of insights. My copy is highlighted and annotated the whole way through. And if we have time today, I will ask you, Myron, for comments on some excerpts, but only if we have time, because I have plenty of questions to ask you. Myron has been a profound inspiration since I stumbled upon him on social media several years ago, and even more since we worked together on a common project. I can say he revolutionized the way I view change, and he expanded my horizons and therefore my possibilities quite dramatically. I have seen firsthand the power of his ideas for human and organizational development. I would not be who I am today, and I would not have thought in the way that led me to write Dare to Unlead if I had not met Myron. Myron, I'm grateful for our lasting friendship and for your presence today. Welcome. Oh my goodness, I'm overwhelmed. <laughs> I mean, should we stop now? <laughs> Yep. That's only a fraction of what I mean when I think of really? you, Myron. Yes. No, it's really humbling. Um, <laughs> to and, and, you know, the work that we did together actually changed me as well. I mean, this profound stuff that, that mm. uh, out there. So I'm sure we'll touch on that. Um, yes. So, Myron, that's a great segue to my very first question. What is your art? Can you describe what you do? What's your art? Yeah, it's a uh, it's a funny thing. I'm I have um, a couple of big clients now, in which I, when I realize what I'm doing with them, it goes well below the surface of what it looks like I'm doing with them. But what I think that I have um, a kind of gift for helping people see what's really going on, in spite of what they're saying about what's going on. Mm -hmm. 
So, and in that is a belief that if people can see what's really happening and how it is they're co-creating what's really happening, it gives them freedom to choose a different path, right? It gives us the, the ability to say, this is working for us. This is where we want to go. This is the direction we want to lead in. And that's showing up, right? Or it's showing up really poorly. And what do we have to do together to, to actually change that? So I think there's some, there's, there's some sort of art of hosting the conversation that makes visible what's really quite invisible generally. Mm, that's a, that's quite a skill. And what led you to that? Oh, well, gee, <laughs> you know, I'm, I, I hate to admit this, but I just turned 70 years old. So I've been doing this work for, um, you know, more than 40 years. And, you know, it was a confluence of things, but I would go back to my high school experience. I went to an all-male Jesuit prep school that was actually really steeped in kind of liberation theology at the time. And we got engaged very much in social change issues. And anyone who, who's listening to this from the United States would know that, you know, every major city in the United States has a Martin Luther King Boulevard, but it also has a Cesar Chavez Boulevard. And Chavez was the leader of the Latino liberation movement, I would say, and the, the United Farm Workers uh, on the West Coast. And my high school, we became part of that movement was a boycott of grapes for a number of years. My high school actually ran the grape boycott in Massachusetts. So I very early on, and there were many other things that went on in that school, but very early on was exposed to activism and social change and whatnot. And that has shown up in a, I guess, a somewhat disguised way in my <laughs> my work with organizations, but the intent is there. The intent is there. That's amazing. And what are the underlying principles of your work? Well, um, you know, there's a couple of ways of thinking about that. I mean, I, I probably have three sets. One is just the general view that organizations are living systems, not machines. That would be the fundamental one. And that, that underneath that is the dynamics, understanding the dynamics of living systems allows you to see what's unfolding in any complex collection of people more than an organization, you know, systems of, um, and all the many systems that are there. It, it allows you to see how those dynamics are constantly creating the intended and unintended consequences that we live in every day. And that the dynamics of living systems persist through time and space. So you, you can either work with them, understand them and try and work with them, or you can work against them. And if you work against them, you'll lose. <laughs> It's just the dynamics of life are much more powerful, wiser than we know. And then, you know, I don't know if you want to go here, but at another level, so, you know, with Meg Wheatley and Fritjof Capra and others, for a number of years, we ran multi-day seminars trying to teach people about living systems theory and its application to social systems change. But, you know, one of the things that I came to believe is that if the living systems view of the world was at all correct and, and the way we were thinking about it in social systems, then you should feel it in an embodied way. 
when the explanation about what's going on is happening, you should be able to say, oh, yeah, that that actually explains my experience in a different way. And so over time, I came up with these uh, maxims, as as you know. And so that would be the other level of principles that I operate from. And what with the maxims, the issue is that they very quickly resonate with people's experience and give them a different window or different understanding on why and how and what you would do to fix things that aren't going well, what you would do to design things so they go well. So that's, I mean, that's the maxims piece. And oh, yeah. And the other piece about it is you don't need a three-day lab on um, systems thinking to be able to understand how you know it manifests at this level and, and how easily you can use them. So, mm. can you tell us uh, about those maxims? Uh, what are they? They're short sentences that bear your name, right? <laughs> so uh, the first one is actually not. You know, I didn't like exclusively create this. It was uh, we think it was Kurt Lewin and Margaret Mead many years ago, and it is that people own what they help create. Full stop. You know, I've never put that out there and found an argument about that. Mm. People need understand and you know for me it 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 means not only do people own what they help create but that whatever is given to any group of people they will turn it back into themselves which is a living system principle as well so if you don't invite the group affected by something into the creative process at some point along the way so that their voice their intelligence their wisdom can be heard you're going to get unintended consequences of the wrong kind. Mm. How often do you think it's, it takes place in the corporate world to invite people affected by change into designing the change? Not, not very. <laughs> <laughs> you're being kind. Yeah, doing a, a design lab for 40 or 50 people who in one very, very big health and care organization in the UK and you know, there's there's a lot of energy for that now. I th you know, I think it's it's because of the complexity of what's going on. You know, you can't possibly effectively lead complex organizations in a hierarchical, top-down manner. It just doesn't work. Mm. Here in the UK, we're, we're and I think across the world right now, health and care systems are under enormous stress, enormous. And, you know, how mostly they're being handled in, in the UK is that central government is shoving new metrics down. You know, if things aren't going well, they, they put a new target of what you should do, which actually doesn't help at all. It, it's, you know, more unintended consequences, I mm. would say, at the very least. But you can't invite everybody into every change. It's uh, it's not how organizations work, right? And they're not supposed to be, I don't know, full democracies or uh, it's going to be uh, chaos and very difficult to run. How do you do that? So how much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> A few minutes. So, yeah. Well, first of all, I would say everybody is already, already engaged. Mm. The entire system is engaged in creating its outcomes. Right. Mm. You know, one of the things that you do so well in, in Unlead, <laughs> Daring to Unlead, is that, that, you know, pointing out that the system has arisen through a variety of dynamics, uh, uh, philosophies, ways of looking at the world, and that 
you know, as that's come into being, it is maintained over and over again by all of us, right? It is not someone doing something to us. It is us doing together this thing. So I don't think you generally, although I have experienced this in my life, just long life, you don't get much evidence for an organization, for instance, top down, everything, you know, um, everybody being engaged in everything that's going on deliberately in an intentional way. But you do get places that uh, subscribe, you know, leaders who would subscribe to being aware that tapping into the intelligence, the experience, the wisdom, the knowledge base of people who are actually doing the work. I mean, this would be another maxim. You know, those who do the work do the change, period. Mm. Take whatever is given and they, they create it as something. Yeah, so people, you know, I guess what I'm saying in, in brief form is that we're always taking up everything around us and co-creating this these outcomes so everybody is engaged now and then how how if you understood that how would you do it intentionally so that you could potentially move the organization into generating uh, reliably the kinds of outcomes you want right hmm. Um, hmm. Another one of the maxims is real change happens in real work. Is that a blow to all change management uh, departments and transformation offices? Yes. <laughs> I need to say more. <laughs> the, you know, one of the things that um, the the segregation rather than integration as a as a energy in systems so that you know the hierarchical mechanical model of you know where where you assume that um that there's a line in the, the forward of, of the book celine that real change happens in real work that you know constantly the assumption that the best way to organize human endeavor is to organize it as a machine is exactly working against you know, the dynamics of living systems. And, you know, when things are not that complex and when, when, when the environment is basically easier, working in the mechanical model does work. It brings you certain, you know, I, I just believe that where we are now is that that conceptual approach, that paradigm is a word people um, get, are tired of, but is true in this case, um, that the paradigm of the hierarchical, uh, mechanical, you know, in the in the UK, the medical model, <laughs> you know, it only produces consequences of the wrong kind mm. or the unintended kind, I guess. I, mm. It produces sometimes things that are good and right that we want. But, but oh, yeah, where I was going is the other um, piece of this is that that um, mechanical model can no longer handle the complexity of what it is we're dealing with in, here. So, um, in the in the UK, using that again because I'm quite deep into the health and care system, one of the things that's been generated over time is a very linear approach to how you do anything. So the system currently is overwhelmed with too many people demanding too many services and not enough. Uh, medical personnel available to them. So what they have done is they break this work into smaller and smaller parts. 
they create a linear process for how you go through it. I would tell you that I'm going through a, a medical issue right now that is, uh, I had something diagnosed in June. Last week, I had my first appointment with the specialist who needed to look at me. So seven months, seven and a half months. In between, I had a number of tests going on. Those tests were done in a sequential thing. First this one, then that one, then that one. And then the results of those tests were not given to me. I had to chase them down. It took a lot of energy and whatnot. And the there are multiple specialties in this looking at this. They haven't spoken to each other, right? So I'm the integrator in this case, right? Rather than, and and this is how complex systems work now because they're living in the legacy of the mechanical model. This is not just about health and care. It's about many other uh, endeavors of, of human beings. So it's that system is just no longer capable. You can't improve it. Mm. You can't improve a linear system that gets thrown more and more complexity on it because at some point there's no more room. Mm. So to affect real positive change, where, where do we start? First, we ask, <laughs> <laughs> hey, what's going on? You know, um, mm. I think this is in your, in your book some. I mean, in, in some, to come back to leadership for a minute, there's, there's something about leadership as hosting, mm. right? Inviting, you know, here's a problem, here's an issue, here's something I as a leader think is, is critical to it you know, where's the information? Where's, where are the relationships? Where's the, you know, identity really? And how do we bring people together to actually think through uh, things? How do we create a peer-based environment as well as understanding that we're not, hierarchy actually has a, a particular role still. And it's mostly about accountability for financial results, preservation of, you know, and ethical outcomes. So there's something in that that still needs a requirement. But as one, you know, one of the major high techs that I worked with for years, um, the leader there would always say, he said, you know, the organization chart, the organogram, as it's called England, I'm, I'm learning to speak the language. The organization chart has never been how any of the work gets done, right? It is simply an accountability system that you have to pay attention to, but the real work of the system is not that at all. Yeah. So where do we start hosting, creating a peer-based culture? So hosting more than once a year during a town hall, right? <laughs> right. This is how you make things go all, all the time. I'd live with, a, you know, another maxim in this is start anywhere, follow it everywhere. And that is really about, People argue about, you know, how do you start strategic change efforts? And they either do things at enormous scale, tons of money and, you know, organized messages, or they do, you know, an imposed kind of change, the organizational structure change. You know, we change the organogram for the millionth time, what, whatever it is doing that. What I, I do is basically the system itself calls out an issue that it needs to work on. We get together with people and say, well, who's engaged in this? You know, who's affected by this issue and how? Can we build a design team that will bring its innate knowledge about the system and what's going on with it and how it might be fixed? Even if there's no agreement within that team about it, you bring them together. 
with, and the first step is getting clear about what the issue is. What, what, are, we, what, what are we really trying to do here? In one client I have right now, last year, we started this big effort, a uh, big change effort, strategic, big strategic change effort that actually began with four people in a design team. The design team is now 90 people. And we meet, you know, on a regular basis, we have, and we do development together, you know, um, uh, what would be some good skills to learn in the kind of social change uh, arena? What would be some good tools? How do we engage more broadly the system, bring them in, the design team, you know, unlike most consultants, I mean, I don't put myself in front of the group. I do with the design team and we co-present, we co work, we co-facilitate. And that, you know, that that's one way of doing it is that you can grow a network of people whose capability and capacity for doing system, good system working, living system working mm. uh, grows and you have this network across the whole system. And, you know, mm. it's different from cascading, you huh. know. Yeah. Is that an illustration of uh, another one of the maxims, possibly my dearest one, which is the way we get to the future is the future we get. Can you yes. elaborate on that? By the way, that came about when I was working with you. Hmm. That maxim showed up then. Yeah. Can I talk about it? I don't know. You know, it, people s tend to not believe that who they are right now shows up in the world right that that often you know you know what's the organizational equivalence of this they say oh, we we don't want to show our dirty laundry mm. public mm. Right but everybody knows the dirty laundry right i mean we all know that so let's have the conversation about it where it comes from what it is i guess on this one the process you use to get to the future is the future you get i um will often say that if you You're, we're trying to do a collaborative, build a collaborative organization. M many people now, I think, say, you know, we need more collaboration. Everywhere you go, it's about them. But you can't impose collaboration, right? And if you do, you don't get collaboration. You get something that's congruent with the way in which you're you're doing it. So, you know, well, I think that's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have to be a community in order to build a community, right? You have to act as though you are a community, you know, act, you act your way into it. I did, you know, some work with, um, this always, or often shocks people, but I did some work with the U.S. Army years ago, many years ago, and they have a learning process that is about how you separate learning and the learning experience from the hierarchy so that you see The hierarchy has to exist for a variety of reasons in that particular situation. But if you want to know what's going on on the ground and you want to make good decisions together, you have to be in constant conversation. And that conversation has to be flat, equal, peer-based. Because if it's not, you don't get the information you need about what's actually going on. And therefore, you don't respond in the right way. Mm -hmm. The other part of it is that you're building, over time, you're building a clarity about the complex identity that you need to maintain. I'm not just talking about the army here. I'm talking about anyone, any group of people is that you're, you're part of the process you're using is to get to greater and greater clarity about what it is we're trying to do.
it's about this, the, the demands of the current moment. Everybody knows this. They quote that, probably, it's probably a misquote, the quote, the Einstein thing about you can't solve, you know, a particular problem from the, the same um, thought or idea that created it. So people know this, right? But when you look at what they're doing, and people know what the future should look like, right? And 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 I say this broadly and respectfully about how smart people are. You know, they they know in the in the health system, for instance, where you know the big push in the NHS in England is to create an integrated health and care system that you know deals with health inequalities. It deals with health of children and families and communities, population health that would be called. And it scales up so that what you're trying to do is create a healthy society and therefore the demand for health and care interventions goes down, right? There's other reasons for doing this, obviously. The problem is, you know, you have the day-to-day problem of all these people in ambulances lined up before the door. There's no rooms for them to go into. So people try and fix this and they get fixated on what's right in front of them and they try and fix it from the the same consciousness that created it. The system will never system will never be able to produce the outcomes that we need. Mm. People do know this. So so the question is, how do you do take care of the current issue from the future? Mm. That's my mm. current thinking about it is that how do you get people to be standing in this current mess, whatever it is that's confronting them? And to enact how you think about it, what you do with it, how you design what what goes on with it from the future view of the future you're trying to create. Mm. Instead of isolating, for example, the ambulance part uh, with ambulance experts and trying to solve that bit. Is that correct? Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Because, you you know, I mean, and, and everyone knows this, that ambulances waiting to unload people who need care at the hospital is not because of what goes on with the ambulances. Mm, right? yeah. It's as much more to do with the whole system yeah. that's going on. And the, you know, this isn't, I was going to say, this isn't rocket science. The view of it isn't rocket science. Trying to fix it might be, right? Mm, I mean, it's yeah. trying together about how to approach this. You write in your foreword that uh, some of the work we did together required courage Why so? Well, what happened to you, dear? <laughs> There's some things I can't say. <laughs> I, uh, I think it does, you know, um, require courage because often, you know, you think of first innovators. They're usually denied, right, by, by the system that they're in. They're, they're seen, the, the innovation is often seen as a threat. And therefore, this pushback from the system to expel th this person or these ideas or whatever else there is in it. And that's, you know, I mean, people are often putting their careers online. They're often, by the way, I don't believe that we should have organizations in which to do the right thing requires bravery. Mm. You know, why, why should you need courage to do the right thing? Right. Mm. But We have created that, right? We have, you know, if you're a whistleblower, and, and we're not talking about whistleblowing here. It's actually, um, you know, one, one of the, the aspects of the courage that's needed is that 
to have some integrity about how it is you really think systems work, to invite people into this process, but you will constantly find resistors and the resistors often can be more powerful in terms of the position, the positionality in the, in the organization or the system. And, you know, and that can have consequences for you, for anyone not being paid attention to, to being expelled in some way in your career. Uh, brings me back something I also learned from you that is also very profound. A living system will only change to remain the same. Can you say something about it? Well, it's, it's actually two steps in that. One is mm -hmm. that one of the fundamental things about living systems is that they seek to preserve their identity. Mm. doesn't matter what happens. And so this is the thing about if you throw something at a system rather than co-creating it, it will take that thing and turn it back into itself mm. somehow. It'll make it meaningful for itself as it currently exists, not as you're trying to make it exist. Mm. However, a living system will change its identity in order to preserve it. So for me, that would, let me stay with the health system again. I'm sorry, this is so much of that in it. But um, for me, the integrated view of health and care is the next step in realizing the full integrity of the health and care system in the UK, right? So if you maintain the system as it is and try and fix it in that position, You're, it will actually, it potentially will die as, as a result of that because it needs actually the change in order to preserve itself. And you speak a lot about health and care systems, but I know from experience, from our work together, that what you describe applies to all complex systems, industrial systems, uh, corporate systems, uh, etc. It's not at all limited to health and care. Okay, no. No, I've worked at, you know, the global corporate world for years and years, led a lot of work in the United States on public education. I've worked in, you know, religious environments. I've worked in, you know, governments all over. So hmm. in all those environments, what should change makers keep in mind? What would be your recommendation? Well, always respect that the people who are doing the work are smart enough <laughs> <laughs> They have the information, they have the experience, they have the wisdom to actually contribute to, you know, a, a new possibility. There was, a, I would say, you pay attention to, the, in the words of Marv Weisberg, what's possible here and who really cares. The other thing is, uh, I, I'm lucky right now, there are a couple of leaders that I work with who are just... I'm, I'm, my breath is taken away with how absolutely compassionate they are and how wise they are and uh, how willing to invite people in they are. And, and I would say that's the, that's the thing that people need to pay attention to more is, you know, respect, compassion, caring for one another, the quality of relationships that we have, mm. the purpose that we have, what, what really is the calling of the work that we're engaged in, you know. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, so I have no time to uh, ask you about uh, this wonderful book that is A Simpler Way, but I will uh, really encourage our listeners to, to take a look. Mine has got uh, all sorts of stickers and post-it notes and so on. It's a really uh, wonderful source of insights. 
what would you say to somebody who hasn't read Dare to Unlead yet, apart from read it? What would you say about the book? I'd say it has a great forward. <laughs> <laughs> it does. I know. <laughs> you know, uh, first of all, the, the uh, liberty, equality, uh, fraternity um, a w is a way of holding um, uh, a different way of being and a different way of, of uh, being together in, in the work is really quite powerful. And, you know, the, the other thing is it, it illuminates so much of what's contributing to things not going well. And, you know, so many examples of what it is you could do to actually make things work differently and, you know, produce different and more compelling, exciting uh, outcomes. And, you know, it's got, it's got everything in there, right? <laughs> it, has, it has history, it has theory, it has uh, uh, inspiring stories from people. I mean, it's really a, You know, unlike a lot of business books or books for the kind of corporate or organizational audience, it's quite accessible and readable and educating uh, mm. as well. Yeah, thank you. And you've probably noticed uh, that this trilogy, Liberty, Equality, Fraternity, actually resonates with your trilogy. That's why I adopted it. Uh, your trilogy of uh, identity, information, and relationships. Identity, to me, re resonates very much with the freedom to choose who we want to be. Information relates to the flow of information, which should be free from uh, patterns of domination and submission, which restrict Uh, access to information so that's really about it being the um, it's equality in diversity through networks and the quality of our, of our relationships resonates very much with a sense of fraternity we can create in our organizations so once again your inspiration uh, shows up <laughs> throughout the the structure of the book thank you so much myron do you have any concluding word and uh, we'd love to know also where people can find you people can find me you know and somewhere <laughs> <laughs> so um in, in a, a couple of concluding things one just about um our friendship i guess i'd say you know um, really congratulations for the book and and um for what you're doing with it and how you're being out there in the world with it but also i'd you know love to see you in person sometime it's been i think five years because of covid and as you know i have some health issues and uh, between those two things i haven't been traveling and so now back traveling and i think i better come you know see the new off in person sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but even though uh, we haven't met in person for a long time, uh, you're very close to my mind and to my heart, Myron. People can find me at uh, myron.rogers at gmail.com. That's my email and I would respond and uh, I'd be happy to hear from anyone. Mm -hmm. So. Thank you. And they, they can find you in your book, in my book, and yeah. we'll post links uh, in the description of the episode, of course. Well, thank Thanks. you so much, Myron, and Thanks. have a great rest of your year. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Great insights. Thank you all for listening. You'll find more info in Dare to Unlead, the book, and all links in the podcast episode description. And now, what else? Action! 
To explore further and apply these ideas to your own context, reach out to me at weneedsocial.com. Let's unlead together.